moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And with me, I have my illustrious co-host. Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and research coach. Also known as the uh, big voice boring guy for those that have listened (laughs) to the show for a while. This is one of the first in a series of sales effectiveness conversations that we have planned throughout the year. And joining us today, we have Helen Calvin, and she's going to be teaching us a lot in this episode. There are three key things that are going to come out of this episode. We're going to learn through conversation why everything is sales. We're also going to learn why some of our beliefs about sales as a profession is fundamentally flawed. And this is the part of the conversation that if I have to stack where I'm the most excited about, we're also going to, through conversation, learn what good looks like in sales and how to hire for those great sales professionals. So super pumped to start the conversation. And uh, the person that's going to be Yoda in this is Helen Calvin. I'm so excited to chat today. I don't know if I'm baby Yoda or grown up Yoda. Uh, I probably baby still a lot to learn myself, but I'm excited to, to share the experience I've had thus far. I'm basically a builder of companies and have spent a, a lifetime in a career taking companies and figuring out how you have that kernel of idea and you scale it into um, a growth organization, most notably uh, a little bit of a decade run at a company called Jelly Vision, a software company which we took from 35 people to 350 with a lot of scar tissue and a lot of lessons learned along the way as I was their CRO and ran their revenue organization. The Jelly Vision story is pretty phenomenal. So I think you're doing the Cliff Notes version of what was accomplished <laughs> there. But that company, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it being a Chicago guy who is now transplanted across the Cheddar Curtain in Milwaukee. But Jelly Vision, tell us a little bit more about what you accomplished during that time. You mentioned scar tissue. All I remember about it is winning award after award for culture, for performance. We're a marketing services organization creating one-off projects for large enterprise businesses, a great marketing company, but not really a growth company. And then we fell into one of our projects really having legs beyond the individual client that we made it for. Uh, A software called Alex helped employees pick their health benefits from their employer. And it was about taking that very helpful and needed software, but how do you scale that into a full organization? And I would say really the keys to success of that company were maniacal obsession about the employees, talent above all, and people throw culture around pejoratively, but really understanding what makes a great place to work and how do you support people as they're doing their best work. And then real customer obsession. And that was something that certainly the revenue organization worked on very in a very focused way. How are we really understanding customer needs and customer wants? 
not just ROI, but also that visceral attraction that you have to a product that makes you want it even before if you need it. That's a phenomenal rundown of all the things that were accomplished there. And this is part of the reason why I was super excited to have the conversation with you, because a lot of the things that you mentioned and you listed off in some way, shape or form, the tone is set for those outcomes by how your sales organization goes out into the world. And that that creates an interesting dynamic considering the conversation that we're going to have, because a lot of our conversation is you know, really going to be focused on what's so wrong about being in sales. I'm a sales guy and you've been the leader of revenue organizations and you've been involved in sales. But when you talk to salespeople, we always think of some other title that we need to come up with. And that points at the problem. What's so wrong about being in sales? My whole background and most of my education and my early training was all in behavioral science. Why people do the crazy things that they do. And I fell my way into sales. And even it took me probably three or four years where I was in sales before I, I stopped apologizing for being in sales. And I remember as I was growing my career, there was a question of, do you want to be chief customer officer or do you want to be chief revenue officer? And I really said, let's not try to obfuscate this. This is an important conversation that we're having. My job is to drive revenue, right? That's the job. But that doesn't have a negative connotation or it shouldn't, or it doesn't need to. Because at the end of the day, every part of any organization is trying to figure out how to sell. I want to get to that part of the conversation. But before we do that, I don't think salespeople have actually done themselves any favors in creating that perception out in the world. So tell us about what is happening out in the world of work in terms of customer behavior, as well as sales behavior that's created this ickiness about sales. So let's think about this. I'm talking to you. I'm saying, okay, I've got this person who knows a lot about your business and your industry. They've been studying it a while. They're really in tune on it. They're offering up a call to give you some thoughts or some advice would you like to take a call with this person? I think you would say, yes, I'm always up for a call for some advice on something I might do. And I say, oh, by the way, some of the things they're going to suggest you to do, they might cost some money. You're going to have to invest some money if you really want to be successful at what you're doing. The first thing you would say to me is, of course, I'll take that. I'll take that advice. I'm willing to spend some money if it means I do better in my business. We would all take that call. And yet, if I say, I've got a sales call, I'd like you to take. If I change that word from advice to sales, the walls go up, the reticency comes up, the cringiness. And when you say, why is that? That's because people are afraid that your incentive to sell something to me means that you're not trustworthy, means that you're going to try to sell it to me even if I don't need it. And that's where that sort of ickiness comes from. You will sell to me at all costs. What I would say to that is my experience in working with sales organizations for such a long time and consulting with sales organizations and and advising companies is the salesperson who tries to sell you something you don't need exists. They do. They're actually a fractional part of sales organizations and salespeople writ large because they weed themselves out because they don't do very well. And when you ask me, why don't they do very well? We all like to tell the sort of anecdote, oh, 
yes, it eventually catches up to them. We want this sort of karmic retribution (laughs) that their reputation eventually bites them and, and they don't do that. That's not really true. That isn't what makes them ferret out of the organization. What makes them eventually dissipate is that selling to people who don't need something is much harder and it takes a lot more time and it wastes your time. One of the best reps I've ever known is a woman, Lainey, formerly Tick, now Fallon. And one of the reasons she was so great is she had one of the cleanest pipelines out there. She had the least happy ears that you've ever seen in your life. And she would, if she got the sense that this wasn't for you, she would move on. So I think that this idea that we don't like being sold to is that we don't think the advice or the help is trustworthy. And then we're going to get sold something that we don't need. And I would suggest that most of the reps that try and do that don't last very long because it takes too much time. That's a really good rundown of that perception. I know that LB is going to chime in on something, but I had something that popped into my head. And this is more of a, how do you deal with this situation question? I'm sure that every sales leader has at some point been leading an organization where they have somebody on their team who is just a rock star but they're just constantly like irritating everybody outside the company and irritating everybody inside the company. And the phrase that I use is productive a-hole. And you as a leader are stuck in a tough place because you've seen these issues and you've seen the impact on the team and also on the customer. And you bring it up and say, hey, I don't think this person is really good for our brand or our organization. And these are all the things that are happening. And then you have some person above you or a group of people above you who says, you can't lose that person. It's going to be crushing. How do you navigate that sort of scenario in a way that is the right thing to do? Because sacrificing the needs of everybody else for one person who at some point could just blow up everything is going to be your issue as the leader, not somebody else's. So how do you navigate that? I've certainly faced this multiple times. And I've seen Two, two outcomes out of it, at least the way that I've seen successfully to navigate it. The first is you have to really ask yourself the question, has this wonderful, productive a-hole been told they're an a-hole, right? Have they been given that feedback? They might not know it. I had a really highly productive rep who was um, one of our strongest and just kept rubbing lots of people the wrong way. When we pulled her aside and said, "You're this is the feedback, this is what's not going well. You should have seen her face. It was absolute crushing humility. Absolute. I am horrified. Why hasn't nobody, why haven't I been told this before? And the behavior changed almost immediately. And I think sometimes this goes back to all kinds of issues within running a leadership organization, but do you have the the sort of resolve to give tough feedback and coach people on it? You'll be surprised how even the most bristly of characters will change their behavior. And then if they don't, if they don't, you need to move them quickly out of the organization because what will happen, and I've seen it, is that the rising tide of all ships will end up overcompensating for this person's perceived high productivity. What I've seen is that if you look in the aggregate at quota attainment or any of these sort of metrics, 
a team collaborative environment outperforms that singular person every time. And how do you substantiate that to senior leadership? You have to have a little bit of betting on yourself on the line to say, I know my team. I know what will create the most productivity. I'm expecting X amount of months of a dip until we actually then surmount. And I'm, I'm betting my job and my reputation on the strength of this choice. And then you have to produce from there. I appreciate you sharing that because it's a common situation that revenue leaders that are at the middle leadership level, first time being a leader or very junior in terms of your competency run into, and it's being stuck between a rock and a hard place. So that's phenomenal advice. And this is from somebody who's been at the top of a revenue organization saying it. I think that that's what Helen described in the question you asked him is a case of the perfect storm, right? Because... I'm a huge fan of emotional intelligence. So here you have a situation where an emerging leader, frankly, it could be an experienced leader, doesn't necessarily have the emotional intelligence to Helen's point to pull that person to the side and say, hey, you suck. And I think that the person not having the awareness, being truly focused on executing the sale, driving those numbers may just have that spot that they don't see and the way that they're actually coming off. The follow-up question to that, Helen, is that how do you cultivate an environment where a sales team does have that ability and does have that productivity that you expect? From? I, I think you have to build it in from everything from onboarding to compensation plans. That's a real critical one. And I think we could do a whole episode on compensation planning. I have oh, a series of soapboxes about that. But you have to build it into the fabric of how things get done. And you also have to build it into performance management. Sometimes sales really comes down to this singular metric of hitting your numbers or not hitting your numbers. And I think one of the things that we worked very hard at Jelly Vision and my prior organization to build in was performance management on other criteria than just if you hit your numbers, right? around collaboration, around decision-making, around uh, budgetary spending. Okay, you're the number one sales rep, but your CAC is 10 times what anyone else's is. So you have to sit here and say, how are we building this into what you're measured on? And maybe you far surpassed quota, but if you have negative marks on some of these other cultural tenants, then you're in performance management territory. And I think there's also the fact of hiring for it. Every company is at the simplest basis, how you hire, how you fire, and how you promote. And we promoted a lot of people into management positions who were maybe decent quota hitters, always right in there, but not the top performer, but they were incredibly collaborative. They were team players. They shared a lot of their lessons learned. They wanted to make sure somebody else won based on their scar tissue of something that, that they learned. And see that you as a rep see this is the person who got promoted. The point that you bring up is I, I think it, it references the Peter principle where oftentimes the most capable individual is not necessarily the best leader. And you bringing out the person that was solid, but more concerned about the overall environment, I think is a brilliant call out. I think you also have to encourage direct peer-to-peer -peer feedback right? It's, it, people take feedback from their managers. They take feedback from their leaders, but there's always a tinge of, yeah, but you're not in my job. You're not doing my job. You don't know how hard it is. Or yeah, you're my boss. 
I'm sure the number of eye rolls that went around behind closed doors <laughs> about me, just because if you're the boss, you're the boss. And so what you have to say is if uh, someone comes to you and says, I'm really having trouble with insert person's name over here. I'm really having trouble with this person. The first question out of my mouth and every one of my manager's mouths would be, have you talked to them about it? Have you talked to them about it? And they might, and most of the time they say, no, talk to them about it. See if you can get somewhere. And so you end up with real at the peer level feedback and communication loop going on that makes everyone then feel in it together. Peer-to-peer accountability is so important from a first-time or immature manager level because a lot of times first-time managers are in firefighting mode. Every time something bubbles up, you get into default solutioning mode and you try to solve the problem. But your role is to make sure that everybody has what they need to be successful. So pushing that back down at the team level by asking the question, is this something that you want me to solve? Is this something that you're just venting about? Or is this something that you need to address with that particular person? And if you're uncomfortable with doing it directly, I can mediate, but I'm not Mm -hmm. having this conversation for you. So that's phenomenal advice too. I think it also speaks to what, what Helen was saying earlier about leveraging what actually makes us capable salespeople, being active listeners, being able to help in the decision-making process. So I think that's an important uh, call out as well. The additional question or follow-up question that I had, Helen, is that when you're looking at the discussion, I think you touched on this a little bit, was about these flawed perceptions about uh, the sales process. How do we help to overcome that? Right? Like, so you use the example. And what I actually wrote down was people don't like being sold. But my inverse to that is they do like to be informed. Yeah, they like to be informed and they like things that are valuable to them. So I'm scrolling through my social media feed and there's all these ads and it's, uh, ad shoes. There becomes that moment where it matters to you and suddenly you aren't bothered by being sold. And I think that actually, certainly in the modern sales world, where even if you're in B2B SaaS, you've got G2 Crowd, if you're in a B2C situation, you've got Yelp, there's information overload everywhere. So I think when sales folks are trying to dance around the idea that they're trying to sell you something, that actually breeds the mistrust more than anything else. And I think you should just pick up and say, hi, I sell shoes. Are shoes something you like? Would you like to talk about this? And you can highlight their problem. But Jimmy, you were saying earlier, okay, should you change the names from sales executive to account executive? It's We all know what's going on here. And we don't need to be sheepish about it. We just really need to be very frank to say, is this a problem you have? Is this something that you want to talk about? And I think guards come down quickly when you're pretty clear about that. Hi, my name's Helen. This is a cold call. It's awkward for me. It's awkward for you. I deal with people who have problems of X. Is that a problem you have? I've been talking about it a long time. I know some stuff. Would you be willing to take 10 minutes and I can give you some thoughts. That's it. It's interesting that you just mentioned that specific example. So my selling style is fairly direct and mainly because I I like to maintain a certain level of control within a framework of, of what I'm doing. And I tend not to be too great with dealing with a lot of variables. So this is just context. So I opt for the director instead of just dancing around. Hey, you're not expecting my call. So I'm going to be brief, relevant statement, call to action. And I've been you know, working on building my team into that cadence because we tend to over-explain things. And 
being transparent from jump, you know, is a huge element of my selling style. Be honest, be direct and qualify in or qualify out. And if it's a qualify out, always leave yourself an opening to re-engage. And then you got your bases covered because I, I think one of the things that happens is even when you look at territory management and all that sort of stuff, everybody talks about, oh, my territory just got cut and there's no customers here. And there's customers everywhere. I think the big thing for sales folks to understand about any scenario, it doesn't hurt you to be direct and transparent because there are a lot of potential customers that are out there. So operate with a growth mentality versus a fixed mentality. The fixed mentality tells you and informs you to be so tight in your communication and so nuanced that you drag out things that aren't fits for longer than they have to. So be direct and identify who the customer is that's actually interested in what you have to offer. So Helen, when you look at the state of sales and how sales is perceived, what's sort of the dominant archetypes that exist that frankly are more or less BS? I think it became the sales cultural zeitgeist, particularly in the past decade or so, this question asking and this sort of rifle question asking that happens and that sales teams have been taught to do, right? Just ask questions, discovery. We even call it the call, the discovery call. And I would say question asking only raises those barriers or people getting reluctant to be sold to when it's question asking specifically to find the ear perks you're looking for. And that's what most sales reps end up doing, or a lot of them. Is the mistake is I'm asking questions to try and find my little gophers that come out so I can grab them. Tune in next time for more of our interview of Helen Calvin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.